in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening and welcome. Nice to see everyone. So just briefly, a little survey uh, before in, in introducing the this, this sitting, I, I suggested that you look and see if you could f get a sense of where your awareness was emanating from. How many of you thought it was emanating from outside of your body? Huh, okay. <laughs> so the rest of everybody else other than Inez are right thought it was emanating from within their body. Okay. In and out. Uh, in, it, in and out. What, what about neither nor? Right. In and out. I agree. Neither nor. No second guessing. I saw your first response. No, there was no, there was no response. There was a, there That's was what I saw. Yeah. <laughs> First it was inside, and then sort of as I sat with it, it did start to uh, disperse out, 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 so, uh, good evening. Let's see, this is a uh, second class of the Shamatha Vipassana and the Mahamudra tradition course, Moonshine of Mahamudra. Just kidding. Um, let's see, we have. Uh, okay, good. Uh, so, we had two readings. This time, one was from the book Wild Awakening by Dzogchen Pula Rinpoche, which I thought was a great introduction to Mahamudra, in the, especially in the context of this course. And uh, as I said, I'll probably use uh, parts of the Shamatha and Vipassana chapters for the uh, practice sessions on the once a month. And uh, Pula Rinpoche begins by uh, talking about what Mahamudra is, defining Mahamudra. He says, it's uh, limitless space, unencompassing space. I thought that was a nice way to open the definition or explanation of what Mahamudra is, because it doesn't really tell you anything. <laughs> and then he goes through the, uh, the term as it's translated in Tibetan, which has three parts that turns out to be uh, great seal of emptiness so uh, some some sort of idea that all phenomena are sealed with emptiness like the stamp of approval or maybe maybe they're sealed so they don't leak something like that some sort of ziplock notion 
that uh, all phenomena are uh, completely packed in to emptiness, uh, which should not give you the sense that emptiness and phenomena are separate, by the way. Then he talks about the uh, importance of devotion for understanding Mahamudra. And um, what, uh, what I, th I think the main point that we were getting at when we talk about the um, importance of devotion for Mahamudra is that in order to understand Mahamudra, we have to be able to appreciate the capability to experience a non-conceptual world to experience non-conceptually and devotion gives us a wonderful avenue for experiencing non-conceptual uh, state of being devotion is sort of like uh, on the continuum from friendship to love to devotion and so we, uh, probably all of us have experienced uh, being in love and that non-conceptual state and um, so devotion is sort of um, turning that love, that feeling of love towards the idea of enlightenment or towards the um, question of enlightenment. And uh, initially we experience the idea, oh, there's some teacher out there, there's some teachers. Maybe we meet a teacher who's uh, very, uh, has an incredible presence that is different than what we may have experienced in other people. Or maybe we just experience uh, various people who have a lot of understanding and knowledge. And either way, the idea of relating with the teacher and and ex, uh, cultivating, experiencing devotion for a teacher is that the that process acts as a stepping stone to seeing yourself as the Buddha, to seeing yourself as enlightened. If we're on this Buddhist path of um, of uh, the Buddhist path towards enlightenment then enlightenment, we're not going to become, it's unrealistic to think that we're going to become fully, completely, perfectly enlightened like a Buddha in one step. It's going to be a somewhat of a gradual process, maybe with some, some sudden, you know, advances here and there. But there's going to be a very long period of time where we have a lot of weirdnesses, still a lot of a neurosis and some some wonderful um, uh, qualities of enlightened being. And if we're ever going to be able to experience that ourselves, we have to be able to deal with this idea that um, enlightenment is within all of us and doesn't mean that every that enlightened an enlightened person is enlightened in every single way of their existence. Nor does it mean that we're supposed to see a teacher as enlightened in every aspect of their existence either. 
So if a teacher does things which are inappropriate or harmful, we don't, we're not supposed to see that as enlightened activity. We're supposed to gradually gain the ability to see enlightened um, potential, enlightened manifestation within the sort of normal course of ascension being externally through teachers and then internally within ourselves. And it's very helpful to see that externally as a support for beginning to understand that sort of contradictory proposition internally, that I can still be neurotic and have all these failings. And at the same time, I have enlightenment is here. And so we use the skillful means of devotion for these two purposes. One is to experience love and yearning for the Dharma as a stepping stone to non-conceptual experience of the nature of our mind, the nature of reality. And as a way, and secondly, the skillful means or upaya in Sanskrit of the teacher is to help us grapple with this contradictory, logically contradictory um, reality that human beings um, manifest or exist along a grade, a, gra a graded uh, path to enlightenment and have some enlightened qualities and some not enlightened qualities. And we, our goal is to develop the uh, ability to see the enlightened qualities and appreciate those and cultivate those. And so uh, he uses this wonderful analogy of the, uh, the manifestation of enlightenment or the facticity, you might say, of enlightenment as being like a, a huge glacier, pure, white, magnificent, massive glacier, just sort of impenetrable. And the only way to, to impact that glacier is through our devotion. Our devotion acts as the sun and warms that glacier and melts the, the glacier into water that runs off the glacier and becomes available for us to drink from. So the more that we generate that yearning and that faith, that confidence in the possibility of enlightened being, the more the runoff from that um, glacier mountain, the image of enlightened being, um, is available to us to drink from. He talks about the the uh, different aspects of the Mahamudra lineage. Um, basically, uh, begins interestingly with a short little summary of the Kagyu lineage, coming from the Buddha all the way to the uh, those individuals who created what we call the Kagyu lineage. Talopa, Naropa, Marpa, Milarepa, Gampopa, and then to some Kenpa, the first Karmapa, down to the present, 17th Karmapa, as being the 
one mainstream of Mahamudra lineage. Then he talks about this idea of there being two, really there's two aspects to that one mainstream lineage called the indirect and the direct lineage. And this is a common feature in the Vajrayana lineages that when we, when we uh, see Buddhism, uh, some 1,000 or so, maybe 1,300 years after the life of the Buddha, that's a long time. And it's a, it's a lot of different people to keep track of. If you're going to try to keep track of a, a really a literal one-to-one -one transmission from the Buddha to your teacher, and uh, it, it gets a little hazy in certain centuries <laughs> during that period. And so what happens in the Vajrayana lineage is that the connection to the Buddha is renewed, reestablished by certain unusual individuals who have the ability to connect directly to the Buddha in the Buddha's uh, sort of Dharmakaya or some Bogakaya manifestation as uh, Vajradhara or as manifestations of Vajradhara. So Vajradhara being the Dharmakaya Buddha, the primordial, formless, enlightened aspect of Buddhahood that is um, everywhere and anywhere and always and forever. And then manifestations of that um, formless state that happen in uh, the embodiment of creatures like the Vajradakini or, or Vajrayogini, whom Chakrasamvara, uh, sorry, whom Talopa met in person. And through meeting that being, the Vajradakini, the wisdom Dakini, Talopa was granted access to Vajradhara directly. So Talopa living some uh, 1500 years after the Buddha re rekindles or reinitiates that connection to the Buddha and makes that connection fresh for us. We see this happen in the Nyingma lineage with the embodiment of Padmasambhava or Guru Rinpoche who is said to be the second Buddha basically considered to be under Madhakaya Buddha, the form body of a Buddha. And so that rekindles that direct connection so it's not murky and lost in the history. And so from Talopa, um, from the Buddha Vajradhara to Talopa, we then have um, the uh, what, what, it's called indirect because uh, uh, I don't, the term indirect is a little odd. It should be sort of like um, new or fresh, like we were talking earlier with fresh faces. This is the fresh lineage of Talopa that he passes to Naropa and to the translator Marpa, the first Tibetan in the lineage, who also receives teachings from a gentleman named Maitripa and then passes those to Milarepa and Gompopa and the Karmapas and so on. And then the indirect lineage is that Talopa, um, in addition to having gained direct realization through meeting the Sambhogakaya Buddha, the Vajradakini, and thereby Vajradhara directly and 
receiving transmission directly. Talopa also studies with numerous other teachers, traditionally a set of 16 teachers. And so that creates the direct, what's called in this scheme, the direct lineage that goes directly back to the Buddha and includes individuals like Nagarjuna and Saraha and Chandrakirti and Aryadeva, individuals that chronologically speaking from a Western chronological point of view would have been impossible for Tilopa to meet. But that's how the story goes. That's what we're told. And um, and then Pula Brimbashe goes through these three types of Mahamudra that I mentioned last week. And he gives one version of these and there different teachers will give different versions of them. Uh, it, not not uh, necessarily the, the different names or like uh, idea of there being these three types, but differences in how they're viewed as being presented. So we have the Sutra Mahamudra tradition that uh, uh, comes from the Prajnaparamita Sutras as well as the Buddha Nature Sutras of the Mahayana tradition and is a way of focusing on those sutras, the teachings in those sutras, to understand the nature of one's mind as being the fundamental point of all dharmic, all Buddhist paths, is to understand the nature of the mind, because the mind is the source of all of our experience. So we don't spend time trying to understand the nature of the body, nor the nature of the external world. We go right to the root of the situation, to the mind. And he uses this wonderful analogy of this Sutra Mahamudra tradition being like a secret path within a, a, a very populous um, city or um, village where everything is out in the open, including this path, but nobody quite realizes that this path is the shortest and most direct path to the center of the city, even though it's wide in the open. And that's the way we view the teachings of the Prajnaparamita and the Buddha Nature Sutras, is that they present this essence teachings, this very um, pithy, simple, profound teaching on how to work with one's mind in order to unravel one's belief in the self and liberate the mind that is not um, understood by most people that study those sutras because it's basically it's too simple, too ordinary. And there's so much other complexity in those sutras that's enticing to understand and study that most of us get sucked into doing that. And uh, so this tradition, um, which came down in sort of a formless way for many centuries and was uh, more formalized by Gampopa, is the idea that the Mahayana teachings themselves have a Mahamudra tradition path within them. And uh, that the key aspect of that path is devotion is that based on devotion, based on conviction. When we say devotion in English, as a translation of the term 
in Sanskrit and Tibetan. The meaning is conviction, confidence, faith, and longing for the enlightened mind. Confidence in enlightenment. Conviction that enlightenment exists within one. And so that's the key feature of that path. The second uh, Mahamudra path is the mantra or tantric Mahamudra path that involves what's called creation stage, where we visualize ourselves as deities and re repeat mantras and so forth. Very Can I ask something really quick? You bet, anytime. Yeah, Just actually, ask, not anybody, an, anybody chime in anytime. Okay, so in the Sutra Mahamudra, it says at the bottom of this one paragraph, through this path, we can attain complete Buddhahood by traversing the five paths and the 10 Bhumis. So does that mean in the uh, mantra of Mahamudra that we can skip over the boomies? <laughs> no, it, it means that in the mantra Mahamudra, the boomies are are uh, traversed under a different name, same same stages, but they have a different name. What are the what are they called in the mantra version? In the Vajrayana version. Hmm. That's the start. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> there's four of them. I know there's oh, a lot of fours. Is it the four karmas? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of fours. Are we talking about the four yogas of life? Yes, yes, oh. the four yogas. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so the four yogas map the, the path of the five it maps the five paths, including which includes the ten bhumis. So the Vajrayana path is based on Abhisheka receiving Abhisheka into the practice of a deity and doing visualization, mantra repetition of that deity, and um, as well as what's called completion stage practices, which are the inner yogas of, of the. Uh, um, heat uh, and so forth, uh, dream yoga and so forth. And then the third is called Essence Mahamudra, and that Punla Prima describes as being just sort of like instantaneous transmission, such as happened when Talopa slaps Naropa with his, uh, Punla Prima says, his flip-flop. <laughs> Usually we say sandal, but he likes flip-flop. And uh, what, what is not necessarily uh, communicated in that short recounting of the story is that uh, that was preceded by 24 years of very uh, difficult uh, working together of teacher and student between Talopa and Naropa. And... Um, so that story where the Buddha held up the flower? Yes. Is that the same same idea? Oh, that is, that is, yeah. That is the same idea. Uh, do you want to tell us that story? Maybe not everyone knows. Uh, what was it? A, a Raja Griha? He had like a bunch of uh, arhats sitting around and 
and instead of doing a you know a sutra or a recitation all he did was he held up a sim one one flower just held it up what what kind of flower i i good i good <laughs> uh, a let's let's call it a daisy uh <laughs> daisy. and uh and and one monk uh smiled um, nobody else was smile everybody else was really grim he's holding was, a flower and nobody like yeah, the one guy, one guy perked up, uh, 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 and a uh, legend has it it was uh, the gentleman who then founded Chan Buddhism in China. And it, that was the monk. Cool. Yeah, they were all monks, and uh, his name was uh, Mahakashipa, and it was a, a lotus flower. You know, the, lotus the, flowers. They were big on lotus flowers and. Buddhist India, right? They must have had must have had some good shears because those are hard to. Yeah. <laughs> Going to be able to walk on water to, to get them. Anyway, that's a legend, not not a, in any way a factual story. But um, the last part of the uh, presentation by Pundarbhim Shay talks about the uh, Mahamudra path, ground path and fruition ground, starting with the view of understanding what is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of reality? Um, and that having a sort of interplay, as I think I mentioned last week, between meditation practice, where we sort of uh, uh, cultivate the view from within meditation and cultivate meditation within the view. We do both. And the path is... Uh, shamatha vipassana that becomes transformed from the the uh, more common uh, what's called we'll see in this book the term common which uh, it means shared shared it's in common with other traditions the type of shamatha vipassana is shared in common with other traditions and mahamudra shamatha vipassana distinguishes itself in uh, the shama, in the case of shamatha in the um, uh, in the level of uh, detail of explanation of the nuances of the um, progression of the practice so we'll go through that um, in this course and then in the terms of vipassana it differs from vipassana in terms of focusing precisely on just the nature of awareness and nothing and uh, really not spending time on analyzing the nature of other things and uh, one of the main points he makes towards the end is that uh, the understanding that enlightenment is not coming from outside us we're not you know, we talk about transmission and it's sort of uh uh, like an apocryphal story like the Buddha and the flower. Transmission comes from within. Just like the the uh, Hare Krishna guy goes up to the hot dog salesman in New York, right? And he says, says uh, make me one with everything, right? We all know that part, right? And the hot dog guy says okay and he puts everything on the relish the mustard the onions the jalapeno peppers 
and he gives it to the Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna gives him a $20 bill. And then the guy gets really busy with other customers and the Hare Krishna guy is standing there waiting. He's eating his hot dog, finishes the hot dog, and he's still waiting. And the, the, the uh, hot dog guy, finally the busyness eases off and uh, he sees the Hare Krishna guy still there and he says, what are you waiting for? And he says, like, change. And the hot dog seller says, Change comes, Change from, comes within. from within. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that that change is, is really a, a, a combination of gradual and little spurts of sudden experience. And, and this uh, famous phrase in Tibetan of uh, um, going slowly, the tortoise wins the race. The tortoise being the uh, slowest, one of the slowest animals you can find. Maybe only beaten by uh, slugs, I guess, or snails. So um, now we'll dive into the other text. I have one other question. Yeah, there please. Was quite a bit about clicking. This clicking. 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 Yeah, say more about the clicking. I'm just. I'd never heard of it before, so um, it, it sounded, you know, this like snap, like snapping the fingers and like. Well, that was the sudden part, right? Some, yeah, some sense of sudden awakening, but but he goes on about it for quite a few, you know, three three chap three paragraphs. So yeah, why don't you read them? Why don't I read them? Or, or tell me where where they are. It's on page the bottom of twelve, and um, it starts with even even Sutra Mahamudra. There is some sense of sudden awakening. These teachings are typically distinguished from the Vajrayana Buddhist teachings. Yet Gampopa describes the Mahamudra of the Sutrayana tradition as being consistent with the Vajrayana teachings, and then. Um, Therefore, we might well ask, what does it mean to say that Sutra Mahamudra is consistent with the techniques of Vajrayana? And he goes on and he's talking about clicking and a strong force happens quickly and awakening. Yeah, so it's this wonderful blend of uh, slowly progressing, doing our practice of Shamatra Vipassana, and then... Uh, periodically having these experiences of clicking in, clicking into understanding this or that, or clicking in to um, experiencing something in the world, something that uh, sort of cuts through hesitation, cuts through confusion that happens to us. Maybe it's a teacher, uh, more likely, it's some, some experience that we have, like getting fired from a job wonderfully enlightening experience getting dumped by a partner you know these sort of things are, are terribly wonderful terribly helpful experiences that clicking into like totally letting go and they don't happen without the the longer preparation so um, an appreciation of both yeah please the clicking is strongly connected to or dependent upon our devotion to the teacher to the teachings and to the power of the blessings of the lineage. Right. So having some sense of continually being awake and open to possibilities and, and uh, this, this essence, essential feeling of devotion of like 
opening out towards um, understanding something that we haven't understood. Mm -hmm. It talks about communication taking place between the sleeping mind and the awakened mind. Yeah, so the awakened mind either externally or internally. And uh, uh, the sleeping mind having enough, you know, waking up enough to be able to be receptive to the awakened mind, which happens in a, in a fraction of a second. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you, you spend years getting to the edge of the cliff and then you jump off. And if you, if you don't spend those years getting there, if like you go up, like take an elevator to the edge of the cliff, you're not ready to jump. So yeah, very important, the, the uh, idea of clicking, of being able to let go. And no, uh, I think realistically, uh, when these experiences almost happen, noticing how we hold back and uh, sort of, sort of um, loosening up the framework of holding by noticing how much we're holding and relaxing that so that we become vulnerable to letting go and clicking into something, something larger, something beyond our world of names and labels. Yeah, that's a very, very important part. Thank you, Sue. Anything else on, on that reading before we shift over? Well, he did talk a lot about emotions. You kind of skipped that, that whole section. Yeah, well, I tried to sum it up as the the way that we uh, channel our emotions into devotion, which I think was his main his point was, and I summed it up by saying there's like this this progression from loving kindness to love to devotion, and he talked about. Um, the uh, relationship with the teacher as having a lot of uh, jealousy and competitiveness as well as love. And uh, so, so the, the relationship with the teacher bringing up all those feelings, which can be brought up in any relationship and um, sort of understanding that devotion is, is, has, just as much intensity of feeling, which is why it lets us experience non-conceptuality. But we have a different way of working with the, um, the attachment that generally comes with love. Where when we meet teachers, uh, basically there's no way to um, succeed in our desire to be to become attached to them they remain unattachable ideally and so in that relationship we we get to experience all of the normal range of emotions that we experience in norm in other relationships family relationships as well as um uh, partner relationships as well as business relationships and 
all sorts of relationships have this range of emotions. It's understanding that, uh, how devotion is on that that uh, trajectory, on that um, uh, scale, and uh, but has that different aspect to it that the enlightened mind is can't be captured in the way that a normal lover who has uh, similar emotional feelings as we normally uh, does create that complexity. Whereas a teacher ideally um, sort of short circuits that complexity of our normal relationship energies and emotions with one click, as Sue would say. <laughs> Any thoughts on that, Blair? What else? Well, no, I was just thinking about how magnetic some teachers must be. And just the desire to have that attachment must be really strong. And to not get that, it's like the unrequited. Yeah. But it's yeah. also... You're sitting there with a thousand other people who are having the same experience. Right? <laughs> The clicking reminded me of taking refuge. Yeah, tell, tell us more. That's good. Because, you know, there's that moment when you get your name and and then the precept snapped their fingers. Yeah. And everything is different. From then on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. That's it's a powerful transmission actually. If if you pay attention to it and if you if you regard it as such, you know, that's a that's an interesting example also from the point of view of transmission is available all the time. And it's whether we're paying attention and ready for it. And so when we take the refuge vow, ideally we're there, we're doing the whole ceremony, the prostrations, the reciting things, we're kneeling. And then click, <laughs> which is totally like a non-climatic in some sense, but there's just a little tiny little gap. Oh, but it's it's so emotional. It was for me. That's great. That's neat. Yeah, it's an important moment. What else? Anyone else? Yeah, it reminds me of something I heard that somebody said, Shogun Chopra said, but I don't know where it came from, which is that um, the blessings are always come. We just coming. We just need to put down our umbrella. Do you yeah. familiar with that? Is that a common? I don't know yeah, I yeah. I, I don't. I don't remember the umbrella part, but the idea that the the blessings are always accessible. They're always coming towards us. They're always there. Mm -hmm. And it's and, us that needs to open up our antenna towards them. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. This topic came up yesterday. Um, I was um, having dinner with um, this Geshe La here and a friend and saying that I was, I, I just got an appointment with the Dalai Lama to join the welcoming line to see him um, on the 18th. And 
I was expressing that I really wanted to ask for his blessing on um, path and like um, making like work as path because I'm stepping back into more of lay life than I've been in for the last four years. And the Geshe left seemed like he was basically trying to debate me about blessings. He's like, what do you mean by blessings? What do you think you're going to get? What is it? What is it? Like, <laughs> and I think I, I, I was having a little bit like taken aback because he's like, you have to put it into practice. That's where it comes. It's like the, the practice. It's not him. It's, you know, and I, and I, I was wondering if maybe it was coming from more of a cultural context of like, it feels like in my context, uh, I, it's, it's needing to open up rather than like work more, but maybe in the Tibetan context, it's like they, he was giving an example of somebody could be like a non-believer and just come and be like, I'm going to get the Dalai Lama's blessing. And then my whole life will just be changed and I'm just going to be happy from then on. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 that's not like, that's not how I'm perceiving it. But it was interesting, like how much he was trying to like make me define what I meant by blessings um, and almost being like critical of it, which, um, yeah, uh, it feels like it's relevant to this conversation of like the work that you put in and then the click and like the transmission, like both of them needing to be there. Cool. Well, let us know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, was, I was surprised how moved I saw him for the first time on Chochul Duchin. He gave a, a teaching and I was, you know, a little bit far away, but I was quite moved just being in his presence. Um. <laughs> He's an amazing being, indeed. I was going to say the last couple of paragraphs in that Pulumpa article. Uh, reading um, that sort of are the last part of that clicking conversation kind of get into this question of how we perceive things as coming from outside because of our dualistic tendencies. You know, it's and, and so those paragraphs kind of get into this a little bit in terms of the fact that um, what we're thinking we're receiving is not really external or foreign to the essence of the mind. So I think it's it, those, that second last paragraph is, and the last are sort of useful, I think, in terms of how we think about these things. Thank you. Cool. So let's turn to our big, big beige book. <laughs> And uh, let's see, last week I read through the foreword by His Holiness 617th Karmapa. So I'll start with the foreword by Kinchen Chongu uh, These days, the special short path of secret mantra, Vajrayana, with its unbroken continuum of instructions, is famous for Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Of those, the sacred Dharma Mahamudra has come down through a long lineage and a short lineage. So that's the direct and the or the indirect and the direct in Palimpramsha's version. The teacher Vajradhara taught in general an infinite number of Narutura tantras. And normally we would say Anutra, but uh, this translator is using a more technical version of the term. Asterisk Naruta. <laughs> and in particular, the Tantras of the Ultimate Essence, the Mahamudra Tilaka, the glorious Tantra of the Unsullied, which comes from the Game of Thrones, by the way, right? Where the Unsullied and others. 
Vajradhara transmitted these teachings to the Bodhisattva Ratnamati, who taught the great Brahman, Saraha, the forefather of all the Mahasiddhas in the noble land. Saraha is famous for being like the leader of all the Mahasiddhas. Saraha instructed the supreme glorious Nagarjuna, who at that point was about um, 600 years old, and the transmission continued. That is the long lineage. The Mahasiddha Talopa, who was beyond being an ordinary human being, went to Akanishta, which is a, a, a one of the higher realms, where he heard all the vast and profound dharma from Vajradhara himself. So Akanishta, in this case, is the Buddha field Akanishta. He proclaimed, I, Talopa, have no human gurus. My guru is the omniscient one. Subsequently, Talopa went to the great kingdom of Sahur in the east, which I believe is in uh, present-day Bengal, and he was apparently Bengali, uh, where he taught the Dharma in the middle of the city. It is said that as a result, many hundreds of thousands of people went to celestial realms, leaving the city empty. It was a big city. There lived at that time the great Acharya Naropa, who was learned in sutra, mantra, and the sciences, who had attained the mantra cities. In keeping with prophecies from the Dakinis, he went to the region of Sahor to meet Talopa, having pleased Talopa with a service of 12 austerities, his famous 12 bizarre um, activities or trials that Talopa requested of Naropa, one per year. He received all the instructions in the manner of one vase being poured into another. That is the short lineage. In order to bring those special esoteric instructions to Tibet, the master Marpa Lotsawa, Lotsawa means translator, traveled to India on three occasions where he spent a long time studying with Siddha Gurus, the exalted Naropa, Maitripa, and others, and practiced all their profound instructions. On his return to Tibet, he trained many students who became siddhas, such as Mei, uh, otherwise known as Tsunpa, Nok, otherwise known as Chodor, and R Ram. <laughs> his most exalted student was Mila Shepa Dorje of Guntong, which is Milarepa's full name or formal original name, who pleased the great Lotsawa by enthusiastically undertaking physical hardships i.e. building nine towers, one after another, made out of stone, single-handedly, as well as dismantling eight of them. Milarepa received the Mahamudra esoteric instructions on the ultimate essence and the special instructions of the profound hearing lineage. Planting the victory banner of practice, he became renowned as a great lord of yogins in the snowy land, which is a the way that Tibet is referred to. Milarepa's numerous students who became siddhas included his heart, son-like heart, son heart son, the exalted Gampopa. Gampopa was an exceptional being prophesied by the teacher, the true perfect Buddha and the king of Samadhi Sutra, the white lotus of great compassion, i.e. Sutra, and elsewhere. 
Exhorted by an emanated form of the exalted one, i.e. Milarepa, he went to meet Milarepa and received all his instructions. He practiced the intended meaning of the King of Samadhi Sutra, which is the instructions on the ultimate essence, the sacred Dharma of Mahamudra. And so this is um, a reference to Mahayana Sutras as being the source of his Mahamudra realization and teachings, which we just heard about as being one of the three types of uh, Mahamudra. His uh, disciples included both his students and the students of his students, who formed what became known as the four senior and eight junior Kagyu schools, which we refer to in the supplication to the Takpo Kagyu chant. The Lord of Victors, the glorious seventh Karmapa, Chudra Gyatso, assembled the collection called the Indian Mahamudra texts, which contains the seven city texts, the sixfold essence cycle, and others. And that whole collection is being translated by the amazing Carl Bernholzel and called the Sounds of the Innate. And they've come out with three of six volumes of those. The eighth Karmapa, Mikyu Dorje, wrote Mahamudra, pointing out the three Kayas. The ninth Karmapa, Wangshuk Dorje, composed three texts. So I mentioned two of them last week. I realized afterwards I never made it to the third one. So here we have extensive, intermediate, and abbreviated <clears throat> that clearly present the experiential and esoteric instructions. The ocean of definitive meaning is the extensive and the others. The others are um, dispelling the darkness of ignorance as the middle length and then pointing out the Dharmakaya as the shortest of those. Among these exceptional texts of instructions, moonbeams of eloquence clarifying the way to cultivate Mahamudra, the definitive meaning, by Dakpo Rabjampa Tashinamgyal, so his full formal name with all these titles, Takpo Ramjampa, is of immense benefit as his clarifying the suchness of the innate state uh, states, <laughs> state states. So um, Moonbeams of Eloquence is the actual formal title of the book that we have here that we're studying, known commonly as Moonbeams of Mahamudra. So if you look on the title page, I think you see the, the full title. Ah, no, you don't. Uh, but here we got it. Moonbeams of eloquence clarifying the way to cultivate Mahamudra, the definitive meaning. Anyway, he refers to this text in another text of his, saying, for great meditators with whom, uh, with whom, within whom realization has dawned. This composition is an offering that inspires clarity and confidence. For lesser meditators within whom the sprouts of experiences and realization are growing, <clears throat> this composition is a feast of certainty that severs doubts. For diligent meditator students who cling to experience, <laughs> this composition is a gift dispelling wrong views and faulty meditation. For renunciates who are devoid of experience and have piled up years of study, <laughs> this composition is a bequest for achieving virtues in the abiding state. Uh, 
Thus, this text will be very beneficial to those with meditation experiences and those without. With the, when the supreme victor, the 17th Karma Barangjung Rik, sorry, 16th Rongjung Rik Beidorje was turning the Dharma wheel in foreign lands, his devoted students asked him what instructions should be emphasized in the present times and in their countries. His advice was that it would be excellent to translate moonbeams into other languages. Accordingly, the devoted, diligent, and well-qualified Lotsawa translator, Elizabeth Callahan, has translated moonbeams of Mahamudra, part of the Light Rays trilogy, which is uh, three texts that Takpa Tashinam Gyal wrote. And among the three Mahamudra texts by the ninth Karmapa, the middle length, dispelling the darkness of ignorance. I am certain that the English translations of these two texts will be of immense benefit to all practitioners. May all keep them in mind. Written by the one called Trangotoko. May virtue flourish. May 14th, 2017. So this came out not too long ago. Uh, the trilogy of texts by Tashi Domgil is uh, this one that we hold in our hands, and then one called Clarifying the Natural State, which is a, a very short presentation of Mahamudra Shamata Vipassana, and then a text uh, on the six yogas of Mahamudra that was published like 50 years ago in an obscure book by Garma C.C. Chang called the uh, uh, esoteric teachings of Tibetan torture or something like that. Translator's introduction, Mahamudra is at once the nectar and fruit of the Buddha's path. It is our own mind's own nature, which is empty and vivid presence. Mahamudra meditation instructions show us how we find that vivid, empty awareness within each moment, each thought, each experience, and every breath. Throughout the centuries that these instructions have been passed down from generation to generation, both orally and in written form, some written works stand out. Contained in this volume are two such texts from the Marpa Kagyu tradition. Interesting use of the term Marpa Kagyu. So we're seeing Tokpo Kagyu, which comes from Gampopa, created his his stream of kagyu is called Tokpo kagyu and uh, marpa's two lineage holders earlier than gampopa and <clears throat> his version of mahamudra is called marpa kagyu and he has other offshoots which uh, include gampopa but extend beyond just gampopa gampopa Moonbeams of Mahamudra is the 16th century meditation master and scholar Dokpo Tashi Namgyal's compendium on the way to realize Mahamudra and dispelling the darkness of ignorance is the ninth Karmapa's middle-length meditation manual within his renowned, renowned Mahamudra trilogy. Trollic Kyabgun Rinpoche, the late, unfortunately. Rinpoche captures the cherished spot these teachings, these texts occupy in this tradition. Moonbeams of Mahamudra is one of the three most important meditation manuals of the Kagyu tradition, together with the ninth Karma Bawangchuk Dorje's Ocean of Certainty, um, which is a different translation of the same text that Elizabeth is calling Ocean of Definitive Meaning and Illuminating 
which Elizabeth translates as dispelling the darkness of ignorance. It tells us everything we need to know about Mahamudra practice. So he identifies three Mahamudra texts as being the uh, be-all and the end-all. This is a specific type of practice inherited from our forefathers, the Mahasiddhas of India. The Mahasiddhas oh, were not... When, when she says just Kagyu tradition, that that covers all three or four? four? When they don't uh, specify... Right, so Trollic, she's quoting Trollic Rinpoche, and he says of the Kagyu tradition. And so uh, when he says the Kagyu tradition, he's he's being, uh, uh, he's including all the various branches of the Kagyu tradition, Marpa Kagyu, Takpo Kagyu, all other types of Kagyu, including uh, Shangpa Kagyu. So Marpa's teacher, Naropa, had a uh, colleague named Niguma who started the Shangpa Kagyu. Um, let's see, the Mahasiddhas were not monks and nuns, but lay practitioners and very serious ones at that. <clears throat> so that's a model that uh, is appropriate, very appropriate for us Westerners, because the majority of us and all of us here are not monastics. All the instructions, aphorisms, advice, and techniques in these texts have but one aim, to point out Mahamudra and show us how to see through the clouds of unknowing. Nothing more, nothing less. It's a good book, by the way, The Clouds of Unknowing. Has anyone read that? All right. <laughs> the term Mahamudra, Chakyas Chenpo, Great Seal, is used to refer both to the nature of mind and the meditation techniques for its realization. The word first appeared in the Indian Tantras as part of a fourfold schema of mudras. With Mahamudra being the culmination of the Vajrayana or secret mantra path. So, this term mudra, um, I'm not sure how much uh, people have been exposed to this term mudra, but um, it's, uh, it's the term for seal. And so, it's uh, this fourfold schema of different types of seals. And so, one as an example, one type of seal is the seal created by the Samaya vow, where one uh, binds oneself to one's teacher and one's uh, practice. And uh, with conviction and surrender. And so in that sense, the seal of Samaya the other of the seals, uh, Mahamudra is one seal, is, the, is another one, and the other two are more obscure. Uh, let's see. It is also used in the tantras to mean a hand gesture or yogic consort. Uh, as the ground path and result of awakening, Mahamudra features prominently in the teachings of the yogins and yoginis of India, starting with Sarha around the 9th century, and followed by Tilopa, Naropa, Shawaripa, Maitripa, and their students in the 10th and 11th centuries. These were charismatic, iconoclastic individuals who often began their paths of study and meditation in monastic centers, later setting out to meet genuine masters embodying the true import 
of the Buddha Dharma, Mahasiddhas living outside of conventional society, Buddhist or otherwise. The Mahasiddhas taught their students in ways that were sometimes provocative, sometimes subversive, controversial, and indeed often in direct contradiction to the norms of established scholastic Buddhism. Their teachings varied depending on the personalities and backgrounds of both the student and the teacher, but they were always direct and tactical, challenging their students to wake up and discover their own nature. The teachings of the Mahasiddhas have been preserved primarily in shorter texts, many of which are in the form of pithy verses, songs, or dohas in Sanskrit, or sometimes apabramsa. Some are scholar scholastic expositions, particularly in the case of Maitreya and his students. During the second wave of the introduction of the Dharma from India to Tibet in the 11th and 12th centuries, so the uh, the Dharma. Uh, said to have gone from India to Tibet two times, first with Padmasambhava in the 8th century, along with Shantarakshita, Vairochana, Vimalamitra, and uh, almost dies out during a period in the 9th century where there's a persecution by a certain king named Long Dharma, and then after that king is assassinated, the Dharma comes back and uh, there's a second wave of teachers coming from India to Tibet, bringing the Dharma. And so the first wave is the origination of the Nyingma lineage, which means the old, the old ones, Nyingma meaning old ones. And then the, uh, the second wave schools are known as the new schools, Sarma, S-A-R-M-A. And those include the uh, Kagyu, Geluk and Sakya schools, as well as the Kadampa school of Atisha, which um, dissolved in, in, uh, as being a separate entity and merged into uh, primarily Kagyu and Galukpa. Uh, let's see, during the second wave, um, in the 11th and 12th centuries, the secret mantra tantras and the Mahasiddha's instructions were both popular, prized teachings. However, with their simplicity and literally memorable qualities, it's been the Mahamudras, sorry, the Mahasiddha's words that have pierced the hearts and lit up the minds of each generation of Mahamudra practitioners. The Tibetan translations of their songs, texts, and life stories are found in the Tenjur. The Tenjur is a collection of teachings by the masters of Buddhism in India and other collections. Uh, so the Tibetans collected all the Buddhist texts from India into two parts. The Conjure is all the teachings attributed to the Buddha, Sutra, Tantra, and Vinaya. And the Tenjur is the collection of teachings of the great uh, masters other than the Buddha in India, such as Nagarjuna and so forth. Uh, let's see. And other collections, the most well-known being Sarha's Doha trilogy. So Sarha, the grandfather of Mahamudra, writes this famous uh, these uh, threefold songs on Mahamudra known as the song to the king, the queen, and the people, sometimes translated as the royal song of uh, Sarha's the king, Doha. 
the Eightfold Treasury of Shorter Dohas, the Seven City Texts, the Sixfold Essence Cycle, and a Dharma Cycle, and a Marasikara, which is non-attention, which was a radical thing. This was Maitripa's doing. Marpa's Mahamudra guru named Maitripa uh, focused on a teaching called Amanasikara, which means non-attention. <laughs> it's the uh, complete opposite of mindfulness. The idea that mindfulness perpetuates the conceptual mind, perfects the conceptual mind, um, and this, uh, or can and can solidify the conceptual mind and that really to experience the dharma true truthfully or genuinely rather we need to transcend that conceptual mind and give up keeping track through mindfulness so experience non-mindfulness which is not at all like spacing out but is very much like uh, spacing in being vividly aware of space, of the absence of uh, intrinsic phenomena, intrinsically real phenomena. Which is why the analogy of space is, is so popular. While Mahamudra is not ex mentioned explicitly, explicitly in all those texts, they are regarded as scriptural authorities in the indigenous Tibetan writings of Mahamudra. This is evidenced by the frequent citation of the songs and writings of these masters, Sarahavi Rupa, who's the, uh, along with Dombi Haruka, the progenitors of the Sakya school, Tilopa Naropa, Shawaripa, Maitriba, Indrabuddhi, and Lakshminkara and others in Mahamudra meditation manuals, as well as their inclusion in the anthology called Indian Mahamudra texts compiled by the seventh Karmapa Chudra Gyatso, mentioned recently by Trangarimshe. Among the many instructions of Mahamudra, the ones relevant here are those that Sarha gave to Shawaripa, who taught Maitripa and instructed Marpa, the great translator, founder of Marpa Kagyu, and those that Tolopa transmitted to his student Naropa, then taught Marpa Lotsawa. An interesting side note is that Maitreya had other students who played significant roles in the introduction of Mahamudra to Tibet in Tibet. So this is an interesting statement by the author. The author says, an interesting aside. And that's where some of us may differ. <laughs> For her, that was interesting. <laughs> For for many of us, that's probably not that interesting. <laughs> and so this is a little bit tedious for many of us, this this part of the introduction. So um, maybe we won't go through all of it, but uh, it's about to get it's about to get a little bit more exciting. Uh, let's see. Atisha being the first and Vajrapani being the foremost. Atisha was part of the early transmission of Mahamudra in Tibet, so known, of course, for the Lojong system of the seven points and 59 slogans, but also was uh, transmitted in Mahamudra. And Vajrapani was a major figure in the transmission of Sarah's Dohas, and it's not the Bodhisattva my Vajrapani, but a human. They belong to the intermediate phase. Vajrapana's lineage of Mahamudra teachings is called the upper translation tradition as distinct from the lower tradition of his student Asu, who taught Milarepa's student Rei Chongpa. 
misclassification of transmissions, the one coming from ARPA alone was called a subsidiary, signifying that the other transmissions were more important in their day, interestingly enough. So these little uh, different pockets of Mahamudra transmission, and interesting that the subsidiary one is what remains at the end of the day, so to speak, as being the primary tradition. Continuing the Kagyu Mahamudra narrative, Marpa's most famous student was the hermit yogin Milarepa, and the one to whom he entrusted his practice instructions. Milarepa's student Gampopa was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, promulgators of Mahamudra in Tibet, and in a number of ways the forefather of moonbeams of Mahamudra. What Gampopa does is he brings together the very um, esoteric tradition of uh, Milarepa. Milarepa's focus was on the esoteric practices of the six dharmas of Naropa, the inner heat, the uh, all the different practices that branch out from the inner heat. And uh, he also taught uh, Mahamudra, but not with that much emphasis. And so uh, what Gompopa brings is that he, uh, he uh, brings almost an equal emphasis to the Mahamudra teachings as to the inner yoga practices of the six dharmas, which is the second uh, thing that he brings to the table. And the third thing that he brings to the table is the uh, uh, Mahayana mind training system of Atisha of the Kadampa. He, had, he studied the Kadampa tradition for many, many years before he heard the name Milarepa and the hairs on the, uh, all over his body stood up and he said, that's my teacher, I'm out of here. Um, and so he brings those three things together. The Kadampa tradition was a scholarly and uh, emphasized study of the gradual path of the Hinayana Mahayana, which is what we see in Gampopo's, uh, Gampopo's Jewel Ornament of Liberation and in Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings extensively on Hinayana Mahayana, uh, as well as the emphasis on mind training, weaving those together with the tantric traditions and thereby coming up with the scheme of these three types of Mahamudra, a Mahamudra accessible to students that are not uh, Vajrayana students by virtue of devotion and conviction and uh, diligence and practice of Shamatha Vipassana. Um, Gampopa is credited with blending the teachings of the Kadampa tradition with those he received from Milarepa and he said to be the first in Tibet to clearly teach Mahamudra as a standalone path free of tantric underpinnings. So free of, like, uh, not based on receiving Abhisheka. The Kadampa, sorry, Kadam Kagyu syncretism came about because before meeting Milarepa Genpopa had trained for about five years with Kadam teachings. Teachers, the Kadam teachings originated in Tibet with the Tisha, whose most influential writing, surprisingly, is not the mind training slogans, but is this text called The Lamp for the Path of Awakening, which was the first, um, what's called Lam Rim, Graded Stages of the Path text in Tibet and became the model for literally hundreds of other such texts by other teachers throughout the remaining history, uh, like uh, 900,000 years of uh, Buddhist history since then. 
The prototype Stages of the Path Long Rim text served as a model for many similar Tibetan works. The Kadambas emphasized monasticism and the gradual Mahayana path, which include the cultivation of bodhicitta, manyamaka, philosophical studies, and Vajrayana deity yoga. Having heard of Milarepa, Kampo was deeply moved and drawn to train with him during the year he spent with Milarepa. That's not a typo. One year. <laughs> One year he spent with his guru creating the most important link in the Kagyu lineage between Milarepa and Gampopa. One year. Most of that year on retreat. Um, he received key instructions of both Vajrayana and Mahamudra after practicing those under Milarepa's careful guidance during that time. During most of that time, he was in retreat. He would come and get instructions from Milarepa for, I don't know, a week or something and then go back and retreat. He continued to meditate and retreat after that for many years before he started instructing students. Gampopa settled in later years under the mountain called Dakla Gampo in Dakbo region of central Tibet, where for over 30 years he taught the numerous hermit monks and yogins who gathered around him. He appointed his elder nephew Gonso as his successor and throne holder of Dakla Gampo, starting a hereditary abbatial, abbatial? I don't know, it's not in my dictionary that were succession that passed from uncle to nephew for about 15 generations. If anyone knows how to pronounce it differently, chime right in. Gampopa had many gifted students who, as they began teaching, initiated the branches of what at this point may either be called the Marpa Kagyu or Takpa Kagyu tradition. And now we have a chart. <laughs> Love the graphics, right? <laughs> So Sarahata Shawaripa. Shawaripa is like in this key position between Saraha and Maitre, but, but we don't know like anything about Shawaripa. It's an interesting dude, mysterious guy. Um, is one stream that focusing on the Mahamudra teachings of Saraha, and then Tilopa Naropa focusing on the esoteric tantric teachings uh, coming together in Marpa passing them to Milarepa and being distilled, clarified, and expanded upon and delineated as separate paths by Gompopa with the two main students, Gomso, who is his uh, nephew, starts this interesting transmission from uncle to nephew that lasts many generations, uh, uh, establishing Dokpo Monastery and comes down to a famous teacher named Lama Zhang, creates the the uh, Salpa Kagyu, Trikung Salpa, in the Kagyu chant, the, and the eight lesser Trikung Taklung Salpa, and so forth. And then on the other side, his student Pakma Drupa creates the Pakdru Kagyu, which has two branches. And this is by far the largest Kagyu school in the world, or these two together, but actually the Drukpa, the one on the left, uh, established by his student Ling Repa is huge. Uh, all of Bhutan is a Drukpa Kagyu country. And then uh, Jigtan Sumgun, the originator of the Drikung Kagyu lineage, coming down to their students. Four of Gampopa students became the starting points of the four senior, what we call the four greater Kagyu subschools. Tusum Kenpa began the Karma Kagyu as one. So the Karmapas are the Karma Kagyu, one of 12 branches of Kagyu. From Pakmodrupa, 
came the Pakju Kagyu, Gomsol and his student Lama Zhang were the originators of the Tsongpa Kagyu, and Dharma Wangchuk launched, launched the Barong Kagyu. Pakmo Jukpa's eight main students established the eight junior subschools, Trikam, Jukpa, Taklung, Martsong, Yelpa, Yasong, Chopu, and Shuksep. Of these four senior and eight junior schools, the Karma Kagyu, Drikam Kagyu, and Jukpa Kagyu have continued as independent major schools of the Takpa Kagyu tradition. And we do have the Shangpa Kagyu tradition also still present these days, having been uh, uh, brought forth uh, in a big way by Kala Rinpoche, the last Kala Rinpoche. And the current Kala Rinpoche, by the way, is uh, into uh, weightlifting. <laughs> Um, in the context of the Mahamudra instructions contained in Moonbeams, the following teachers and lineage in the chart opposite are important. Gampopa and Mahamudra's path. Gampopa taught somewhat differently from his Kadam teachers and Milarepa. Marpa and Milarepa guided their students to the realization of, Mar of Mahamudra by first teaching them Chandali. So Chandali is the Sanskrit term indicating the inner heat yoga, yogic practice of inner heat known as Chandali or Chandali. And then Mahamudra. So first Chandali, first you had to you had to actually accomplish inner heat in their tradition, Marpa and Milarepa. So it was a rare, rarefied group of beings who received Mahamudra transmission because not very many people can accomplish Chandali practice. And then Mahamudra, once their students had experienced the wisdom of Chandali, the force of that brought forth the realization of Mahamudra. <clears throat> is Chandali, is that the same as Tumo? Tumo, exactly, yes. Known more popularly as Tumo. The, so, so it's kind of like Nundro. You do the hard part. Mahamudra, right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the inner heat, the mystic inner heat. Well, Gampopa did teach the same Vajrayana path of method to certain disciples. So this term, the path of method, is, is a, a technical term that is used in distinction of the path of liberation. So the this uh, way of understanding the variety of tantric paths says there's basically two types. There's paths of method that are uh, transformational Vajrayana paths where we transform neurosis into wisdom through creation and completion stage practices of deity yoga and uh, as creation stage and completion stage of Chandali and so forth are all paths of method. They have uh, vast, skillful means. The path of liberation is Mahamudra. And uh, in the Dzogchen tradition, there's a, a similar classification in essence, but uses different terms. Elizabeth. I'm just wondering if uh, Drupa, is, is that Drukpa? It is Drukpa. Okay. Yeah, Jukpa Kagyu. It means dragon. So this is the year of the Jukpa Kagyu.
While he did teach the same Vajrayana path and to some disciples, he also taught other students Mahamudra is a path distinct from the mantra path and its methodology. An account of Gampoba's pedagogy is given by the 15th century author of the Blue Annals. The Blue Annals is like the most famous history of uh, Buddhism in Tibet, written in the 15th century, though it's obviously it's <laughs> the history up to that time. A gentleman named Gu Lotsawa, called Gu for short. <laughs> the exalted Milarepa did not separate the path of method and Mahamudra. However, Gampopa only gave the instructions on the path of method to those who were suitable recipients for the mantra path. He gave instructions on Mahamudra to those who were suitable recipients for the Paramita approach without bestowing Abhisheka. He composed stages of instruction, tree rim, on what is called conate union, lechikepe, lechike jor, sorry, known in uh, Chungpa Rinpoche's world as co-emergent or emergence. He composed stages of instruction on what is called conate union. That is known as the Dharma realization of Takpo. Gampopa. Although the scriptures discuss many qualifications for gurus and students, Gampopa said that students don't need many. Devotion alone is enough. He produced the realization of Mahamudra without delay, even in some who were dull-witted, impoverished, or evildoers. There's hope for me yet. <laughs> and you too, Brock. There's hope for us, buddy. <laughs> He was pointing at himself. I didn't pick him out. He was pointing at himself. <laughs> he also composed the treatise on the stages of the teachings, Ten Rim of the Kadam, and gave many oral instructions. From then on, he was renowned for blending the two rivers of Kadam and Mahamudra. Gunlotsawa called Gampopa's second way of teaching Mahamudra the Paramita tradition, even though that doesn't exactly accord with Gampopa's own description. Gampopa's view of Mahamudra as path is summed up in his own delineations of three paths. The Paramita path is for those of lesser abilities who have faith and engaged the path of accumulation. Secret mantras for those of intermediate abilities who have concepts of mental afflictions and who engage the path of method. Mahamudra is for those of sharpest abilities who have prajna and engage suchness. And the path that utilizes inferential cognition, which means like uh, conceptual mind, involves analyzing phenomena in terms of being a single unit or a plurality. This is the main. Uh, these are the main ways that the Madhyamaka tradition determines the true nature of reality, looking at whether phenomena are um, unitary or are they uh, compounded, determining that they lack any nature, thereby coming to that conclusion, recognizing there is no other destination or conclusion. There's no other place that they go to, to go to, and then meditating upon that, that, uh, uh, conclusion of no conclusion. The path that utilizes blessings, purifies the channels, winds, and so forth, relying on the process of generating the deity's forms. So that's the first one is, you know, these are comparable descriptions. 
these three to the parami, the version I hit above, parami to secret macho. And thirdly, the path that utilizes direct cognition is that of intrinsic Mahamudra. Direct cognition is seeing directly the nature of the mind. Saying that Mahamudra is for those of the highest abilities, and yet teaching it to students of various capacities is not necessary. Hey, yes, ma'am. Just before we go on, was so would be would the number one in that list would that be part of the Mahayana? It would. Okay. It would. So it's, so it's kind of like Mahayana, Vajrayana, and Mahamudra, right? That's right. That's right. But it, it's Mahamudra in the way that the uh, uh, the Sutra Mahamudra is being described as being basically like a Maha, Mahayana path. Okay. Mahayana-based Mahayana path. That's right. And uh, let's see. Uh, this is uh, saying Mahamudra is for those of highest abilities, and yet teaching it to students of various capacities, not necessarily contradiction, indicates as Trungram Gyalcho Rimshe Sherpa observes the use of Mahamudra in two senses. Mahamudra, taught without prerequisites such as initiation, thereby thereupon became accessible to general audiences. There is a striking paradoxical contradiction between the view that Mahamudra is um, I think it should say an insight meant for the few, and the claim that Mahamudra teaching is made available to the masses. This contradiction may be resolved by recognizing that the term Mahamudra is here used in two distinct senses. The Mahamudra of the third column, <laughs> which is an odd thing to say, but I guess he's looking at a chart that he's created in his, his book. Um, or element in Kampoba's list has the older sense of this term. It's the realization of essence that is superior to the sutric and mantric paths. In a second sense, it consists in practical advice towards realization. It is a pedagogical system that includes many conventional Mahayana teachings and only culminates in the traditional Mahamudra. Gampopa's dual approach to Mahamudra gave a wider range of practitioners access to a direct, incisive, and simple path, one that Saraha calls the path of the essence. As was said, Gampopa's blend of Kagyu Mahamudra instructions with the graduated Kadam path was a non-tantric approach to Mahamudra, meaning that no Abhisheka or preliminary Vajrayana meditations were required to practice Mahamudra. And thus, we have where we are here, what we're doing here. Also, uh, yes, that's why it seems like this is saying why Trungpa made Sadhana Mahamudra available. That's correct. Yeah, same idea. Thank you. That's great. Great comparison. Yeah, great point. Um, let's see. Kampopa also introduced the framework of progression, the four yogas of Mahamudra, one-pointedness, freedom from elaborations, one taste, and non-meditation. But he did not lay out the systematic, systematic training in shamatha and vipassana that is seen in later Mahamudra manuals, such as moonbeams and dispelling the darkness of ignorance. So he, he began the... Uh, creating these separate paths and then later teachers elaborated upon them more fully fleshing them out with in particular the the path aspect of mahamudra shamatha and vipassana 
By teaching Mahamudra separate from the Vajrayana path, it may seem that Gompoba had done something radical, something in innovative with no precedence. But did he? This question does not seem to have been an issue during his lifetime for his disciples and their students. It became one, however, when about 80 years later, after Gompoba passed away, Sakya Pandita. Now, Sakya Pandita is one of the greatest progenitor, greatest uh, early masters of the Sakya tradition. And he was a great scholar and had enormous clout. Um, he, he, um, he uh, was, was chosen by the Tibetans to represent them when the Mongols came uh, knocking on the door of Tibet and threatened to uh, massacre them if they did not succumb to the Mongol um, leader, uh, Manga Khan. And the Tibetans smartly um, <laughs> surrendered. And uh, they weren't unified at the time and they elected Sakya Pandita, this religious leader, to represent them to the Khan. And he went and brought his nephew Pakpa and he uh, became the envoy of the Mongols in Tibet, became the, the leader of Tibet uh, as sort of a puppet government. But um, the Mongols, it was not quite a puppet. Anyway, that's a different matter. Great logician, greatly respected scholar, objected to Mahamudra being taught outside of what he regarded as its only proper context, the tantric path. His perspective was that Mahamudra is not found in the sutras only in secret mantra and therefore it can only be practiced within the context of that path. <clears throat> By calling into question the authenticity of Gompopa's approach, he naturally provoked many responses from Kagyu scholars over the centuries, including Tashi Namgyal and Moonbeams. So we'll see, I think, numerous places where Tashi Namgyal uh, refers to Sakya Pandita either uh, explicitly or inexplicitly, as well as uh, we'll see references to the head of uh, the progenitor of the so uh, Galupa tradition, Sokapa. And let's see, where are we? Um, so, uh, I thought, so uh, we're a little bit behind. If you, if you know your Roman numerals, <laughs> how are you guys with Roman numerals? <laughs> I, I really struggled with that to say that. I was going, wait, were we going backwards or, you know, but yeah, yeah what, anyway, what, I, I remembered. What page are we on? Yeah. Okay, so we'll do this last section and we'll leave the non-tantric Mahamudra for next time. So the repudi repudiation of Heishan Mohayan, little uh, little argument that underlies some of the tension in this the uh, understanding of the path in the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist world. Some of Sakya Pandita's critical remarks about Kampoma's Mahamudra teachings hark back to the legend the 8th century Sino-Tibetan, i.e. Chinese-Tibetan debate at Sami Monastery. Early on in the first wave of the first days of Buddhism in Tibet, there were uh, Buddhists from Tibet and Buddhists from China. Mainly represented by a gentleman named Heishong Mohayan, and it's speculated that they were primarily a Chan school, which later 
goes uh, to Japan. It's called Zen. And uh, the king wants to just, they had radically different teachings and the king tries to decide which one of them, which style of teaching should prevail in his kingdom because he doesn't like these different conflicting schools that are arguing with each other. So he holds a debate, which apparently was like a, a common thing in those days. They didn't have football and other forms of organized sports. <laughs> so they had debates, imagine that. Like instead of Sunday, you know, watching football, they watched, they went to a debate. Amazing. Uh, the outcome of the seminal moment in the early spread of Buddhism in Tibet was to determine the direction Tibetans would follow and their adoption of Buddhism briefly, according to Tibetan accounts during the time of King Trisundetsan, there was a disagreement over approach. Is the path to awakening instantaneous or is it a gradual one? <laughs> This polarity was said to be represented. This would be like a great movie, I think, with you know somebody like Howard Cosell announcing it, and like yeah, <laughs> the whole hoopla, as Cynthia is indicating. This polarity was said to be represented by the teachers of Chinese Chan Buddhist teachers and Indian Buddhist teachers, respectively. The Chinese monk Heishang. In the in this corner, we have the Chinese monk Heishang Mohayan, who's been teaching the Tibetan. It was alleged that he was promoting an instantaneous path that dispensed with the need to cultivate virtues, disregarded the principles of karma, cause, and result, and only required not engaging mentally. Oh, that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? You don't have to do anything. Just like don't engage mentally. Just like ignore everybody when they talk to you. <laughs> the Indian Buddhist approach in the other corner, which had been laid out clearly for Tibetans by the master Shantarakshita, emphasized the progressive path of the Paramita scholastic study of meditation monasticism, all leading to and culminating in the realization of wisdom. To determine which path was the authentic one, the Indian teacher Kamala Shila, who was Shantarakshita's main student, was invited to Tibet to debate with Heishang Mohayan. King Trisong Detson served as arbiter, and in the end, when Heishang Mohayan admitted defeat, Kamala Shila was declared the winner, and India, the Indian gradualist approach became the royally sanctioned Buddhism of Tibet, and Heishang Mohayan was expelled from Tibet. The irony of, sorry, Cynthia? Oh, I was just going to say, it's it's funny how the it's the setup is a winner-take-all scenario, you know. Totally. That's the way it was in those days. Winner-take-all, and either you could leave or be killed or convert. Yeah, there were actually three choices. This is kind of like their Super Bowl. This was definitely the Super Bowl of all time in, in Tibet. And interestingly, you know, you have traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen that are very similar to, but they're, they're combined with the gradual approach. So that's what's happened is that you have combined. Uh... <laughs> oh my God. This story has been repeated throughout the centuries to bend histories, all of which can be more or less traced back to a certain document text called the testimony of Ba <laughs> of the Ba clan the first narrative of the debate in Tibetan source well that purports to be an eyewitness account it did not actually appear until sometime in the 11th or 12th century 
that's five or six hundred years later, right? It's worth mentioning that earlier documents do not substantiate the testimony's version of events. Uh, it's a very controversial, for example, the ninth to tenth century Nyingma author Nubchen Sang Yeshe's famous book, Lamp for the Eye of Meditative Concentration, which has been translated and published recently, includes the instantaneous approach as the second of four stages of the path, incorporated within a graduated stage of the path scheme. And according to a manuscript set found at Dunhuang, written by Mohayon student Wang Ji, the debate was conducted through an exchange of letters, and Heishang Mohayon's teachings were declared genuine by the king. Both sides say they won. It's like the joke about the pope and the and the rabbi. Do you know that joke? <laughs> I'm not going to tell that joke. Despite those different accounts. The testimonies, uh, oh, and by the way, there's a, a recounting of this debate in the end of volume two of The Profound Treasury of the Ocean of Dharma by Trung Brimshe. He has a little vignette, you might call it, about this debate where he, he notes that they did the entire debate without words because they didn't, they didn't speak the same language and they didn't trust their translators. So they did it all symbolically. Uh, maybe I'll circulate that, it's pretty funny. Despite those different accounts, the testimony's portrayal of the outcome of the debate has been used to substantiate the claim that India was and is the only valid source of Buddhism for Tibetans. And by, and by the way, that's the uh, the rabbi and the, and the pope joke is all without words. It's just like uh, Rimshay's recounting of this debate. There's no words. Um, and that any other than a gradualist approach may very well involve straying into Heishang style meditation. So throughout the history of Tibet, like they would insult each other by saying, oh, that's, you're talking, you're, you're like talking like Heishang Mohayan. And that was like a great insult. You really get the hairs up on their back. Regardless of whether the instructions, sorry, the testimony set the stage for subsequent polemical writings. As we see when Sakyapanti to criticize the Kampoba's Mahamudra approach by saying the present day Mahamudra is for the most part a Chinese Dharma tradition. That's like the lowest insult you can give to, to somebody in Tibet. That's like, oh, God, did you have to go so low? Then about 300 years later, Moonbeams, Tashinamgyo rebukes Sakyapandita and defends the Dagbo Kagyu system by listing how it differs from Heishang's system point by point. So. That is riveting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I thought maybe uh, as we're doing this introductory classes before we hit the actual text, we could just close like by reading one or two stanzas from the opening uh, homage, so which is on uh, page one of the actual text or page three. So we get a little juice flowing at the end, right? So everybody able to find that's called introduction. Starts with devoted homage to the guru and the Vajra of mind. Homage to Vajradhara, the Lord, pervading all entities and non-entities. His nature is free from elaborations, yet he displays all sorts of elaborations as Rupakayas. He is free from expression and beyond the sounds of words, and yet his melodic voice of indestructible self-sounds arises. Interesting. 
He has purified characteristics related to dualistic appearances of self and others, and nevertheless has the characteristics of compassion, the ground for benefit and happiness. I bow to the unequal teacher, the sole friend for all with fortune, the one endowed with the three secrets emanating variously throughout the three realms as the Buddha. His body emanates the play of illusion. From the view of his disciples, his speech proclaims the Dharma of the three honors to each in their own language with non-referential, vast love. So this is the third of three types, stages of compassion, non-referential compassion. The first stage is compassion with a reference to sentient beings. The second stage of compassion is for the, for the nature, uh, for the uh, the way things are, the nature of the way things are, i.e. Dharma. And the third one is without reference, compassion without reference point. Equally for everyone, his mind embraces all beings. Receiving even a bit of Chanda's compassion reveals the meaning of hundreds of definitive and pre provisional treatises during exposition, debate, or compassion. He bestows fearless, unobstructed, intelligence. He enables us to realize easily and directly profound suchness, what's hidden for the ordinary. I bow to the supreme deity, exalted Chanda. Please bestow the supreme gift of confidence. So let's end there for tonight. Any further comments? Derek, I have one. Yes. Uh, many years ago, Karmapa gave a Tenrezi empowerment in uh, Seattle in an old theater, and he commented how the money mantra was like the heirloom of the Karmapa lineage. And reading all this kind of reminded me in some way that there's like this Mahamudra, these teachings are almost like some kind of heirloom or something that that we have the, um, that are kind of like we're being made aware of and what are we going to do with it yeah that's great the heirloom the, our inheritance from this lineage from our karmic connection just by being here and mm. and whatever other connections that we have to to dharma and uh whatever part of that is to the karma kagyu lineage it includes the mahamudra in, in particular and uh, it's interesting he did that at the beginning of a Chenrei Zig or Avalokiteshvara empowerment. Karmapa is said to be an emanation of Avalokiteshvara, as is the Dalai Lama. So thank you for that. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Nice nice way to end. So on that note, why don't we uh, dedicate the merit? I can find it. By this merit, may all attain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory.
Thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed you. the. Uh, Thank you. This so this is the style of just like reading through it and talking about it. So um, I hope that's bearable for you. <laughs> and you can stick with it. Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Thank you very much. Good night.